Welcome to the show. This week, will the government close the loophole for asylum seekers entering Canada at irregular border crossings? Plus, veterans charge the government is reneging on election promises for veteran services. Is it true? And reconstruction in Afghanistan. After more than 16 years in a battle against al-Qaeda and the Taliban, what will it take to achieve peace and security in this war-torn country? Joining me now to talk about this is Border Security Minister Bill Blair. Welcome to the show, Minister. Thank you much, uh, this announcement by the Americans that they are going to cut the numbers of refugees by one third. The last time they cracked down on refugee numbers, we saw a spike at the border. Are you concerned we're going to see that situation well, again? Well, we've been working very hard to, to mitigate the impact of, of some of the decisions that are made outside of our country, and you're right, And uh, last year in 2017, as a direct result of some uh, decisions that were made in the United States, we did see a surge of people coming to our border from the United States and, and, and making refugee claims. We have been working very hard with the United States, um, and, and I've just most recently, uh, as, as a result of my appointment, reached out to Secretary Nielsen, who's the Secretary of Homeland Security. Um, we are working very closely together now, and our officials are, are entering into discussions on how we can work more collaboratively together to, to mitigate the impacts of, of decisions made on either side of the border. We're going to take a look at the Safe Third Country Agreement to see if it can be enhanced and improved to serve the, the, the mutual interests of both countries. And that's one of the things the opposition has been calling on you to do. So what exactly would that look like? Well, frankly, I don't want to get ahead of the discussions, and I, but, but certainly we've, we've received very positive indications of, from the United States that, that they are always willing to work with us in, in order to keep, secure our borders, maintain the integrity of, of the border security on both sides. It's, it's something that we have the longest undefended border in the world, and it's something that, that we're very proud of. And the economic activity that, tra that transpires across that border every day is important to both countries. And it's incumbent on both of us to work together and, and to address those things. But, you know, in response to could it get worse, we have been working also really hard to be prepared and, and for any eventuality. And so we put the resources at the border. You know, our first responsibility for anyone entering into the country is that they be subject to significant security background checks so that there's no risk of criminality and, and, and no risk to, to national security. And so those resources are in place. And CBSA and the IRCC have been working very collaboratively at the border to... to receive these individuals and the, all of them by, by Canadian law and by international convention are entitled to due process. And we want to make sure that we, we manage that process as efficiently as possible. We've made significant investments okay. in improving in that system and so that it can be, it'll be more efficient and quicker. I, I know you've certainly invested money in trying to speed it up. There's still an overall slowdown of the system, but it seems like the numbers aren't improving. Your government's argued they have, but if I look at the numbers from January until August of 2017, 13,221 people crossed the border. For 2018, it's 14,125. So that number is up overall. Well, let's, let's compare things that are up are comparable because there has been very significant investments made and work done at that border. In the last five consecutive months, we've seen substantial reductions over the same period of time last year. And in fact, we've seen over the course of the summer, 70% fewer people have presented themselves at our border seeking refuge than the summer of 2017. And so we are making progress. And, you know, we've got a very robust outreach campaign. We've sent ministers and parliamentary secretaries. But if your numbers are up, how are you making progress? Well, because the numbers were up compared to the, the, the period that you state, um, we, we saw a significant surge of people coming through up until about April of this year. But we've been very effective in our outreach campaign and our work with the United States. There were a number of different 
I think, vulnerabilities and, and uh, issues that needed to be addressed, and we've been addressing them. We've been working very hard to make sure that anyone who might co be contemplating coming here, that the information available to them within their own communities or in their own countries, that they understand that seeking asylum in Canada is not a free ticket well, to, um, to permanent residency, that they are going to be subject to, to be stopped and checked for, for security, and that they will get due process. And I think it's, this is very important. We want to make sure people understand. If they're not eligible to stay, they're going to be subject to removal. Do you know, where, do you know where they are, though? I mean, not very many people have been deported. I think it's just over 100. Well, if, if you look at it, everybody's entitled to due process, and if people have been moving through that system, but we've also put significant resources now into improving the speed at which those processes are taking place, and there are investments being made in CBSA. As people move through that system, they will be subject to removal, and those who are not eligible to stay will be removed from the country. Some of them just choose to leave. I will tell you that we, we did experience a surge of people uh, last year. We found a very small percentage of them were actually eligible to stay, and the overwhelming majority of those people have left. But we know there's a great deal of work to do. That's why we've put $175 million into building out the system, $74 million into improving and enhancing the ability of the Immigration Review Board to, to deal with these in a timely way. And our intent is to make sure that our system is fast, fair, and final. Okay, because it's hard to stop them from coming in, so I guess you deal with them on this side. But I want to change gears and talk to you about guns. Yes, uh, your government is considering a ban on handguns. What would that look like? Okay. Would you have to remove all guns, including those that legal owners have now, to stop violence? Well, let me be really clear. What our government is looking at is all of the different ways in which guns, particularly handguns, get into the hands of criminals. We've seen a surge of gun violence right across this country, in large cities and in small communities. And Canadians are quite rightfully concerned on that, and they expect us to do something about it. And so I've been tasked to look at how those guns get into the hands of the criminals who use them to victimize other people and to, to plug those leaks. We're prepared to look at any measure, including... Now, we've heard calls from the City of Toronto and the City of Montreal. I'm, I'm hearing it in Surrey, B.C. Canadians are very concerned about handguns, and many are even calling for a ban. We're, con we're considering any measure that will be effective in keeping guns out of the hands of criminals. But that isn't just simply a ban of handguns. It's also we're considering looking at ways in which we can stop those guns coming illegally into this country. And just as importantly, uh, we're working on reducing the demand for those guns among criminals, so that because you have to reduce <laughs> both the supply I, and the I, demand. It'd be nice if we could convince the criminals they didn't want them. But if you're right next door to the United States, can you really stop the guns from coming across? You could ban them here. Yeah. Other countries don't face that situation of, as you put it, the largest undefended border in the world. Well, I was a cop for 40 years, and a great deal of the work we did in the city of Toronto was interdicting the supply of guns, both coming across the border and leaking out of the domestic market. Okay. You know, there's a tremendous amount of work that can be done there, but you've got to work in communities to help young people make better choices. And I'll tell you that things can be done there as well. But, but we, it's, we have it's to a, it's unfortunately wrap to there. But we appreciate it, and of we'll course. certainly be back to talk about this again in the future. Thanks, yes, Minister. We owe a sacred trust to veterans and their families, all of them. So if I earn the right to serve your country, this country as your Prime Minister, no veteran will be forced to fight their own government for the support and compensation that they have earned. Why are we still uh, fighting against certain uh, veterans groups in court? Uh, because uh, they are asking for more than we are able to give right now. Two back-to-back -back clips of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, one during the election campaign and one earlier this year responding to a veteran at a town hall in Alberta. 
This has raised questions among the veterans community about whether it's a case of promises made, promises broken. Joining us to discuss that is Veterans Affairs Minister Seamus O'Regan. Minister O'Regan, thank you for joining us today. Before we get started, I'd like to start with a question that, that has a lot of Canadians and a lot of veterans outraged, and that's the case of Christopher Garnier. He is a convicted murderer, convicted of murdering female police officer Catherine Campbell uh, in a violent uh, and horrific case. He has never served a day of his life in the military, yet he is receiving treatment for his PTSD, which he got, he says, from murdering this police officer from Veterans Affairs because his father served. How is this possible? This is perhaps one of the most frustrating cases that you can imagine, I think, as a Veterans Affairs Minister. And I was outraged. I said as much when I heard the news as well. Um, and Canadians have a right to be outraged by this. We have a duty at Veterans Affairs Canada to the veteran to looking after not only them but their families as well. Um, this is a, a very obviously very extreme example uh, of an extension of that policy. I, mean, I don't back down on the policy. We'll do whatever it takes to make a veteran well again and in this case you know it's, it's his father. Um, but this is obviously an extremely tragic example of that and I have asked my officials to get back to me as soon as possible uh, with the reasons for this decision. Well, and, and this is the curious thing because when you look on the website, there's a program for dependent children. Yes. Um, I've spoken to a number of veterans, though, who say that they have struggled, including uh, Mark Campbell, who you know, a yes. uh, veteran who lost his legs in Afghanistan, had to pay for his children's therapy, who were school-aged children at the time because yeah. Veterans Affairs didn't cover it. Uh, Russell Williams, uh, a man who committed unspeakable crimes, was stripped of his benefits by the Governor General. He served, and he still didn't get them after he committed murder because it wasn't related. Is there a possibility that you can intervene here as the minister and stop money that is earmarked for veterans being spent on a convicted murderer who's never been in the Canadian forces? I'm going to take a look at this. I mean, again, you know, I, I realize, and it's worth repeating the point that he wasn't a serving member, ever a serving member of the armed forces. His father was. His father's a veteran. Um, we have increased our resources to look after family members. This is not exactly where I intended it to go. Um, but you know, we, we'll, we'll, look, we'll look at the case once we get it. Uh, I, you know, again, I won't apologize for looking after a veteran's family members, and I'm not sure about the cases that you brought up, what happened there. Um, but you know, I do know that I, this, this has to be, we have to take a look at this. All right. Well, and other things that you're taking a look at as well, I understand, is, is resources. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's something that your government committed to, and I, we saw that in the clip with the prime minister. Mm -hmm. The government committed they would not take veterans to court. They did. You took the Equitas case about pensions to court and argued that there was no sacred obligation. Uh, when the Tories underspent in their department on veterans affairs, the Liberals accused them of stealing out of the pockets of veterans. Your government underspent, as Global News reported this week, by $372 million. There's a lot of promises that have been made that it seems like you haven't lived up to. Did you overpromise to veterans during the election campaign? No, let me spell out exactly how we've delivered. Um, first and foremost, let's talk about the estimates, $372 million. We did accuse the Conservatives at that time of, of holding back money. That's because they were cutting everywhere else. 
they cut benefits, they cut services, they closed offices, they fired staff, and somehow, you know, that's supposed to improve the lives of veterans? But you I don't still think didn't so. spend this money. Well, here's, the, here's the how it works. Estimates, estimates work in such a way that we make sure that we always have the money made available to us so that if anything occurs in any given year where all of a sudden we get a lot more veterans, if, if all of a sudden we got into a war that we didn't, didn't foresee, if a tragedy occurred to a number of our veterans, if something happened, we are statutorily obliged to make sure that every one of them gets the money that they've been promised. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, the Department of Finance and everybody knows that. So every year you allow for that. I mean, the, you know, the best analogy I can give, and, and this is kind of crass, but it, it's, it's how it works, is when you prepay at the pump and you put in, I'm going you know, uh, to put in 80 bucks and you fill it up at slightly less than that, you get the credit back. You but use it for would you have time. accepted that argument from the conservatives at the time? Within the context of us spending $10 billion, absolutely right now I will defend that to make sure that we are watching our, our dollars. Absolutely, because we are spending $10 billion in new benefits and services. So, yeah, I feel like I can defend that. But you didn't bring back the lifelong pension, which was one of the promises. You brought back a pension, and you're calling it a lifelong pension, but it's not the same amount of money, and it's not completely tax-free. I totally disagree. We promised that we would bring back a monthly pension. We are bringing back a monthly pension for life. You promised a lifelong pension. We promised a lifelong pension, for, absolutely, and it's monthly, and that's what we're bringing back. Well, why do veterans say that it's this called is a pension lump for sum, life? It's, it's exactly it as it's branded. It doesn't add up to the same amount. It's, it's financially substantially less. I... I, I don't know. I mean, you may be hearing that from people, Mercedes. I've done 42 town halls, uh, summits, and you know, legions since January, and I've, I've walked through this. And, and when I walk through it, it, it's understood. This is a pension for life. It is a monthly pension. So the veterans are telling you they're happy with it. Oh, many. When when once I walk them through it, yeah, they understand it absolutely. Look, there's a disparate number of veterans out there. I mean, there are lots of them with, with many different opinions. And what I'm quite happy that we're able to do is that we've been able to develop a pension system that incorporates things like PTSD, that we're able to take a, a pension system and make sure that they get the vocational rehabilitation services that they needed. Okay. Because what we heard, and just to give people a sense of history, I mean, what everybody on this Hill agreed to unanimously, and you know, as a freshman MP, I'm beginning to appreciate this, unanimously all parties agreed to the new Veterans Charter, that, that we would no longer go with the Pension Act because it wasn't serving veterans well. If you go back... But you will not find a single veteran who was happy that you removed that. And you've promised one, one the, veteran, the pension one veteran, one standard. And, and you don't have one veteran, one standard because you still have people before 2006 with a very different system than those who fought after 2006. We, we, we can't go back and, 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 and pretend that 2000 exist, 2006 didn't exist. There was unanimous consent that the Pension Act was no longer working. We had to do something different, that we had to bring in vocational rehabilitation services in a large way. But this was meant to be what, what they call it here in Ottawa, an evergreen document. It was meant to grow. We were meant to listen to veterans. So, you know, what did the previous government do? Well, when, when it became... But you've been when in power became, for three years now. When it became, and I'm still cleaning up the mess. We made it very clear that what we wanted to do and what people in Canada made it very clear about was that the lump sum was no longer working. Veterans felt like they were being written off the ledger. And you know what? In fact, it seemed like they were. So we said we would bring back a monthly pension, that we, it would be lifelong, and that it would be flexible to the needs of veterans, and would also encourage work, which I'm a big believer in for those people who are able to do it and for whom it works. Work is a great thing. I know that myself. Okay. I'd like to ask you about another report that we had this week on service dogs. You've received... 
the report. I know you hadn't had a chance to read it at that point, but it was pretty positive about the difference that these dogs make in the lives of veterans who have PTSD. Have you had a chance to read that report now? Yeah, yeah, I have. And are uh, you going to? That was literally dogs? coming out of cabinet and saying, "Have you read the report?" Um, no, give me give me a second. So I, I did read the report now. It's uh, it, first thing. I think it's it's good news in that you know it does confirm some of the things that we anticipated it would say, uh, which is why we acted by by the way back in the budget uh, with the medical expense uh, tax credit, and already allowed for fifteen hundred dollars a year for veterans to to either put it towards the the purchase of the dog, the training of the dog, or the upkeep of the dog. We knew this was coming down the pipe. Things that we need to look at a little more carefully. The sample size is small. At the end at the end of the day, it was about eighteen veterans. Um, and the other two things that are really, really crucial that we have to dig a little deeper on is the burden on the caregiver and, and the expense and, and, I, and I guess, uh, of, of medication. We didn't see a significant drop of medication as a result. So is it a trade-off? Do you, do you have to choose between a dog and medication then? No, no, no. We, that's why we need, these are the questions we got to ask. You know, the, we, it, we have to dig a little deeper in that. And, and also, you know, these are extremely well-trained animals. Um, and uh, they're not easy to come by. I mean, there are only a certain number of suppliers in the country, and you know, sp depending on the supplier, they can be anywhere from fifteen to twenty thousand dollars each. It usually takes about two years to train them. These are all factors we have to take okay. into consideration. But having said that, we didn't waste any time. We put fifteen hundred dollars that can go towards the purchase of the dog, the training of the dog per year uh, in, the, in that tax credit, or you know, dog food or vet's bills, which are things that add up. Uh, one last question for you: the service targets. You had committed to having one veteran for every. Pardon me, twenty-five veterans for every one caseworker. Your actual numbers are around one for every 33. In some regions, it's one to 42. Why haven't you been able to deliver on that promise? It's very tough to get qualified people after, you know, a thousand people were fired by the previous government. So, I mean, I, look, I'm, not, I'm only going to be able to stretch out the, you know, we've been in power two, three years, and they created one heck of a mess, let me tell you. So I got to figure out how to hire these people back. Now we've been able to hire 475 of them back. We haven't hired back enough bilingual. We're about, you know, francophones are according to the ombudsman, you know, 33 weeks extra or 33 week waiting period for them particularly. We have to hire more francophones. But getting good case managers, they, these are extremely well qualified people. They need to be trained up. That is taking a lot more time than I thought. We do have a lot more work to do. We started with a burden of about one, uh, one, uh, one case manager to 40. We've worked up to one to 33. We want to get to one to 25. Uh, it, it takes more time than I thought. I've told veterans in, in, you know, in these 40-plus town halls, I'm about as impatient of a minister as they're going to find, uh, but we are working at it. You made these promises. Your prime minister said veterans are asking too much. Are they? Listen, we have put $10 billion towards new benefits and services. I stand by that. Actions speak louder than words with this prime minister and with this government. Ten billion dollars is a lot of money. I want to get it out there as quickly as possible. I won't be satisfied until veterans feel it. Okay, Minister O'Regan, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mercedes. Joining me now, John Sopko. You are the Special Inspector General in charge of reconstruction in Afghanistan. Uh, John, for a lot of Canadians, Afghanistan is a memory. It's a war. It's in our past. You're still there. Can you bring us up to date on what the lay of the land is in Afghanistan today? Well, um, it's a stalemate from a uh, 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 military point of view, and everyone has said that, including our ambassador uh, to Afghanistan recently. I look at the reconstruction side, and so I'm very interested in our training and advising and assisting the Afghan military and police. And we've had some setbacks, and we're concerned. I think the 
recent attack by the Taliban, which was successful for a few days on Ghazni, has been a real eye-opener as to the situation. So we have some concerns, but we're also cautiously optimistic because there have been feelers between our government, the Afghan government, and the Taliban on trying to do peace negotiations. So that's the optimistic side of the equation. From a reconstruction perspective, do you think that a deal with the Taliban is necessary to be able to rebuild Afghanistan? Does, does there have to be some kind of a truce there? Well, I think everyone feels if we are going to succeed and if the Afghans are going to succeed, you need peace. And one of the things I spoke about at the university yesterday here, the University of Ottawa, where there was a conference, uh, was talking about the necessity for security for any of these programs we have focused on to work. Security is a key. If you don't have security, you're not going to have better schools. You're not going to have better roads. You're not going to have a better government. You're not going to have a fight against corruption by the host government if they're always concerned about the security. So I would think, drawing your question, which I think is a very good question, is we have to get peace in Afghanistan to actually help the Afghans fully. Can you rebuild and can you have that peace without a more significant security presence there from Western countries like Canada and the United States? Because there's not very many troops on the ground anymore compared to where we were five or ten years ago. Well, that's a good question, too. And I know our government, and I know your government probably was part of the discussion, too, but our government had to consider that with the new administration. And they decided to increase the number of troops. But the sheer number of troops is not really what we should be focusing on, is what kind of troops, what is their mission, and where they're being used. And I think the administration came up with a policy of using more troops for the training, advising, and assisting, and letting those troops then go down to lower levels of the Afghan military and police to try to assist that training. That was a good proposal. That's one of the proposals we have recommended in our reports. They also said to focus on some of the successes. And some of the successes in the military was that the Afghan special forces are actually doing a very good job. So spend more resources there to try to improve their special forces. Also, the Afghan Air Force is improving. So spend more money and resources there. So it's not just the finite number. It's what is the situation on the ground and how can we use the successes and avoid the failures to improve things? And I think that's what you're seeing now, a year in, but it's still only a year. It takes time. That's the one other thing we've learned. You can't do this quickly. You can't do this with unrealistic expectations and unrealistic timelines. You have to know what's going on the ground and do something about it. I'm curious to know, Canada, right now has zero troops that are contributing in Afghanistan. The only troops that are there are protecting the embassy. I'm looking at the numbers here, $270 million in development assisted assistance committed between 2017 and 2021, $195 million committed to rebuilding the Afghan National Security Forces. Would you like to see the Canadian government doing more in Afghanistan? Well, I can't tell the Canadian government what they should do, and I can't tell the Canadian taxpayer what they should pay for. I'm, I don't have that hubris that I know what's best for Canada. I can say is Canada has contributed dramatically. And I think since the Korean War, it's the largest influx of, of cash, 
blood, sweat, and tears. So the Canadians have done a lot. But the Canadian government has decided not to, you know, uh, uh, send more military. Uh, I, I, who am I to second guess that? Canada has helped us a lot. The assistance that they're giving is helping us a lot, and the programs they have. And that's, again, one of the reasons I was here in Ottawa, was also to talk to your Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and your, you know, it's a combined ministry that now has aid and trade in it, to talk about what lessons they've learned, what problems they see, and how we in our office can help them. So I'm very happy with the Canadian contribution. And I think the Canadians should be proud of their people working in Afghanistan. And so I just can add that. I have had a very close relationship with all your ambassadors and your embassies, and they have been tremendous, tremendously effective players in Afghanistan. I'll, I'll broaden it out then. Excuse me? I'll broaden the question yeah. out. Do you think that there should be more contributions from Western countries or from NATO to try to secure Afghanistan and to try to help rebuild it? Because it sounds like with the current levels, it's a struggle. Again, I, I, I can't directly answer that question. And again, I don't think we should focus on sheer numbers. It's the, the need that NATO and the allies can provide. They, that, that it may be a few extra troops, or it may be a certain expertise. I know with police training, NATO allies, including Canada, Germany, and the rest of those countries, have a better capabilities than the U.S. does on police training. And I think our military, I know when I spoke to our former senior officers out in Afghanistan, that was one of the takeaways they told me. If NATO could give us more of that expertise, it's not sheer bodies, it's the expertise that can help them. So that's something, you're absolutely correct. I think NATO could help us more, and we should ask for that help, and I think we are. How big of a problem is corruption right now in Afghanistan? I mean, the U.S. is spending $122 billion, I think. Um, it's historically been something that the country has struggled with. Has there been progress on that front, and how do you deal with that? Uh, good question. And you're hitting the nail on the head with that. Corruption is a serious problem for two reasons. Number one, it steals money from Canada, steals money from the U.S., the Germans, and everybody else. If the, the corrupt officials are stealing money from us, they're stealing money from you and your taxpayer. So it decreases our effectiveness because we lose money. It gets diverted. But the second and the most sinister is that corruption fuels a cynicism among the Afghan people. When they see the big power brokers, the fat cats, the organized criminals getting aid money siphoned off to them, or they get all the contracts, or their family get all of the visas that go to the United States or elsewhere, that can undercut any rule of law and any governance, good governance that the host government is trying to establish. So that's the two-headed viper that can destroy Afghanistan. Are we doing enough? Well, you read our reports, no, we don't think we are. We're trying to. Our ambassador out there is trying to do something on corruption. Your Canadian ambassador used to take the lead on fighting corruption, but it's the Afghans who have to do it. Now, we've been asked by our Congress to go back into Afghanistan and look at how well the Afghans are living up to their promises that they made in Brussels to fight corruption, and we will be reporting back to Congress on that. But that is critical. You've hit one of the most critical, actually two of the most critical, 
One is security, and the second one is corruption. We have to deal with those. The third one is, of course, narcotics. And where are you at with that right now? Because I remember the opium problem and burning the marijuana fields when the Canadians were there. Uh, has the problem with drugs become better or worse? Well, I, I think that's a very good question, especially from a Canadian, for a Canadian audience, because most of your heroin, which is on the streets of this city and other major cities, comes from Afghanistan. Unlike the United States, where we get less than 2% of it. I think you get up to 90%. I forget the exact figure. So I can understand why your audience would want to know about that. And unfortunately, bad news. We've, we, the United States, have spent billions, I think it's $6.8 billion, on trying to support the Afghan government in fighting narcotics. And using any indicia, it's been a failure. There's more opium crop being cultivated. There's more heroin coming out of Afghanistan exports. There are more drug addicts in Afghanistan. There's more money going to the Taliban as taxes, and there's more money going as bribes to the Afghan officials. So we have a serious problem. Again, our Congress has asked us to go back in just recently to assess the situation there. And up to now, it's been a bad, bad experience. Now, it's not an easy problem. I've been looking at counter-narcotics for years. We have a narcotics problem in the United States, major narcotics problem in Latin America. I remember cutting my eye teeth on looking at narcotics problems in Peru and Bolivia and all that. But we got to do something. Otherwise, with the combination of the two issues you hit on, corruption and narcotics, if we don't do something soon, and if the Afghan people don't do something soon, you're going to end up with a narco-terrorist state in Afghanistan. Is Afghanistan close to being a failed state? I hate to use the word failed, particularly because there are so many people in Afghanistan who are trying to do a good job from the leadership on down. And I'm always... I always feel good coming back from, and I go every three months to Afghanistan, when I see some of the young Afghans who are supporting their government, whether in the military or civilian. So I don't think it's a failed state. It's a troubled state. It's a very troubled state. It needs help. And that's one of the reasons why my government and your government is supporting the Afghan people. What are the consequences if Western countries ignore Afghanistan, if they walk away, uh, if perhaps the president says, we're going to pull aid funding, we're not happy with how the government's doing or how narcotics are coming along, what are the consequences? Well, again, that's a policy question that's above my pay grade. President and Congress determine whether we should be in Afghanistan or not, just like with your parliament and your premier. Um, but everyone I have spoken to, and, and publicly, I believe General Mattis, who's the Secretary of Defense, and uh, Secretary Pompeo may have mentioned it too, that if we uh, dramatically cut off support to Afghanistan, the government would be hard-pressed to survive. Um, does that mean we will be there forever and ever? Uh, that's a decision that our policymakers have to make. But I would just say that the Afghan people and the Afghan government would be hard-pressed to survive without the financial and uh, uh, support uh, militarily uh, to the Afghan government. When you're dealing with the Afghan government and you're dealing with the regional governments, 
to touch on that issue of corruption, how do you deal with it in a country like Afghanistan where some of these officials are warlords? Some are closely affiliated to the Taliban. Uh, when I was in Afghanistan, people used to say, governor by day, Taliban by night. Um, that's a very difficult situation. Well, it is. I mean, you know, it's the proverbial joke about uh, how do you deal with porcupines very carefully. Um, we try to know who we're dealing with. We try to know what motivates them. We don't pay bribes, but at least we know what motivates the person. And we try to support those people who are trying to do a good job and who are honest. Uh, not everybody you deal with, you know their full background. It's more difficult. But I, the answer to that, I think you just have to be extremely careful. And you really have to know the country, know the people you're dealing with. And that was one of the criticisms. We just issued five lessons learned reports, and that's a common theme that we really didn't know who we were dealing with and know the consequences, particularly of dealing with the warlords. It's the old proverbial line, you know, you go to bed with dogs, you wake up with fleas. Well, that happened in Afghanistan. And the terrible thing is, again, it hurt our standing with the average Afghan people. And now we empowered a lot of these warlords, a lot of these corrupt organized crime figures, a lot of these people who violate human rights. And now we're stuck with them. And we got to do something about that. So that's an important thing, too. What do you do about that? <clears throat> well, first thing, stop supporting them. Second thing, identify it. Third thing is conditionality. Apply real conditions. If you violate human rights, we're not going to give you anything. If you don't support your government in fighting corruption, well, then you're not getting visas to the United States. You're not gonna, we're not going to let your kids go to NYU. We're not going to let you travel. There are many ways of doing smart. And I'm not talking about draconian conditionality, but smart conditionality. And my agency has been harping about that for at least the last four or five years, or since I've been there six years ago. Smart conditionality. We haven't done that. We have to be brave enough as a donor to say no to the Afghans. And for too long, we thought, oh, my God, if we say no, they won't like us. They won't, they won't take our money. Well, of course they'll take your money. Do it. Hold their feet to the fire. And my job is to hold my government's feet to the fire, to hold the Afghans' feet to the fire and those things. So that's one way to handle that problem. Oh, John, that's all the time we have. But thank you thank so you. much for joining Pleasure us. Pleasure to be here. I always love to go to Canada. So thank you. Thanks for checking out the West Block podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple podcast, Google podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.